0: We've been in a series called God's Big Story. And uh, and we've been talking about sort of the, the bird's eye view of scripture, and, and we've been reading these hot chapters during the summer. We've got this hot chapter Bible reading plan, encouraging you guys to all of us to read these selected readings from the Bible, Old Testament, and New Testament, and as we do so looking at the significant moments of Scripture. And one of the reasons that we're doing that is because when we have this bird's-eye view or just this, this overall understanding of the big picture, of God's big story, then we find ourselves reading the Bible, wherever it is that we open up to. Hopefully we'll have a little bit more of a sense of where we are in that story and what that means to us. And, and understanding that context can kind of help us know the Scripture better and understand the scriptures better. So that's the idea of what we've been doing, and I uh, think we're going to have some fun today. Um, at least I'm, I'm into it, and I hope that you guys will be as well. But first, I, I want to get you caught up on where we're at in this series. We had Scott Boren come, a uh, guest speaker, this past Sunday, and uh, and so we interrupted our Sermon series for that, but I want to let you know. Um, so Corey preached just to refresh your memories. Corey preached on Abraham two Sundays ago, and he talked about Abraham, the God's covenant with Abraham, and God's promise to Abraham that he would have many descendants, and that his descendants would bless the nations, right, as numerous as the stars in the sky that he could count or not count when when he looked up at the night sky. Well, the question is, because we're talking about covenant with Israel now, so how do we get from Abraham to Israel and the law? Well, Abraham's grandson, right, Jacob, means Israel. And Jacob's sons formed the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of Jacob's sons is Joseph, and Joseph is hated by all of the rest, They're jealous of him, so they come up with a plan to sell him to slave traders. Joseph is sold to slave traders, and eventually he's sent to prison in Egypt, and you kind of get the sense of, like, man, we're just covering some stuff quickly here, and that's true, and when Joseph's in prison in Egypt, he interprets some dreams for Pharaoh, and these dreams reveal the fact that there's going to be years of plenty, and then years of famine, and so Joseph says we should store up the extra food during the years of plenty, and that, that way we'll have food during the years of famine, and actually Egypt ends up, there's the, the famine is more widespread than just Egypt, and Joseph's family is affected, and they're looking for food, and they find out that Egypt has food. And so they go to Egypt uh, for food. They find out that Joseph's alive. In fact, Joseph has been made second in command of all of Egypt because of his ability to interpret dreams and discern and his wisdom. And so Joseph's family, who will form the Israelites, receive and enjoy the favor of Egypt, which brings us to Exodus 1. Exodus 1 verse 6 In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied greatly, so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, Look at these Israelites, right? They, they outnumber us. They're stronger than we are. We need to make a plan to keep them from growing even more. Skip down a little bit. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. And this fulfills God's promise, actually, to Abraham that we read about in Genesis 15, 13 to 14. I'll show you on the screen. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land, where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. So after 400 years of the Israelites being slaves, Egypt is punished with a series of plagues. Moses leads the Israelites out into the desert, and we get to this point in the Bible where all of Genesis is through, or kind of halfway into Exodus, all the plagues have happened. All of the exciting stuff is over. And now Israel's in the desert, wandering around, struggling. There's a, there's a couple of dramatic periods, but there's also a series of laws. And we've all, I think we've a lot of us has had this experience. We're like, okay, I'm gonna read the Bible, start, finish, beginning to end, and maybe it'll take me a year. Um, or maybe I'm going to try to do it in 90 days if I'm feeling like I've got a ton of free time, but we, we've all like kind of made this commitment, not all of us, but at some point we've wanted to, and we get to the law, man, and we start reading stuff and some of it's kind of maybe even upsetting or troubling to us and, uh, there are laws about purity, laws about worship, laws about society. There's 611 do's and don'ts in uh, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And there's, I like to think of the laws as uh, th- easily being divided up into three categories, right? Ceremonial, law having to do with ritual and worship. Uh, civil law having to do with how we're going to structure society and where people should put fences and what we do with boundary lines and stuff like that, and and, and moral law, right? Don't kill people. Don't steal from people. And so that's helpful for me because when I read the New Testament and we hear that a lot of the law no longer needs to be followed because of Christ and his work on the cross, one of the things that I, I recognize pretty easily is that ceremonial law Uh, no longer has to be worked out by me because it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then civil law no longer has to be obeyed either because that was for a specific people at a specific time that no longer applies to modern day. But I'm still left with this moral law. And really, you know, the question comes, well, how do you know? How do you know which one is ceremonial, which one is civil, which one is moral? And the answer is, well, these are nice categories, but there's not a list in the Old Testament that easily divides it up. You know, to a certain extent, you have to use common sense and also recognize that there is overlap. So it's a little bit more messy than I like to imagine that it is. But I'll try to give you a different framework today, besides ceremonial, civil, and moral law. And uh, it's one that I find maybe even more compelling and more helpful. But some of that stuff is disturbing. And we see this passage in uh, Deuteronomy 25, verses 11 to 12. I have it on the screen as well. Just one example of a disturbing law. If two men, a man and his countrymen, are struggling together and the wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him and puts out her hand and seizes his genitals. The King James Version there says, taketh him by the secrets. (laughs) Then you shall cut off her hand, you shall show her no pity. And I think we read that and we go, man, that sounds extreme and barbaric even. And, uh, you know, Jude and I went camping, we had a hatchet. I didn't tell Valerie this, but I'm like, I'm sitting there, cutting logs, splitting them with my hatchet, and then I, I miss a log, and it goes straight down between my legs, but misses my leg, and I'm like, ah, okay, that was not smart at all. There's got to be a better way to do this, and I feel like a fool. But just that graphic imagery of what it would take to dismember a hand, and, and all of that sounds barbaric. And I mean, man, a man gets into a fight, right? And his wife wants to rescue her husband. So far, that sounds like a a thing that she should want to do. And so what does she do? This is exactly what we teach young women to do in self-defense classes. Man, if you are a woman and you need to overpower a man, taketh him by the secrets. (laughs) It's just, it's, it's what you have in your tool belt. Then you'll read through the Psalms, right? You'll read through the Psalms, and David will say things like, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. And you're thinking, what books is he reading? Does he have a version that I don't know about? To make matters worse, some of the laws are duplicates. So you get through Exodus, and you're like, oh, good, I made it. Then you start reading Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and every time you get through a book, you're thinking, oh, I'm not out of the woods yet. It can take a lot out of you. And that's the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And the last four of those books detail God's law, his covenant with the Israelites, he's freed them from Egypt, and he's making them a special people. The question for us today is, what exactly is the law, and what are we supposed to do with it? So remember the verse that we were just talking about, the one that some of you are trying to forget? I want to take a moment and talk about this text, examine it, unpack it a little bit. And there's three things that I want you to consider when we look at this passage, and they're good principles for you to consider when you read through the Old Testament and come across a passage that makes you uncomfortable or that you find a little troubling. So consider other passages that are like it. That's the first thing. Consider other verses that are like it. See, at face value, when you read this verse, it contradicts other laws that you find that while you're reading, laws like eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, right? I mean, just, just think about that. She, uh, she grabs a man's genitals, and she has her hand cut off. And that's not exactly eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And so how do you enforce one law when it contradicts another one? And and that should at least cause us to pause and think that, well, maybe there's more to this text than I might be uh, reading. Number two, investigate the language. See, the truth is, sometimes ancient Hebrew can be difficult to translate. And so here's just using this passage as, as an example. It says, if two men, a man and his countrymen, are struggling together and the wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him and puts out her hand and seizes his genitals, then you shall cut off her hand, show her no pity. Notice that the, the, it uses the word hand three times. Actually, it doesn't. So in the Hebrew, it's more literally saying something like this. Uh, deliver her from the hand of the one who is striking him, puts out her hand, then you shall cut off her palm. And all, all of a sudden, that parallel language and the sort of the body part per body part thing, it, it cut off her palm. And then you have to, I mean, you question that, right? Like, it sounds like that would be difficult to cut off someone's palm without cutting off the hand, right? Are you just sewing the fingers back onto the wrist? <laughs> Probably not. Right? So why would we stop using the word hand and prefer a more confusing word instead? It breaks the parallel, it confuses the reader, it seems a lot harder to enforce. The palm, the word for palm there, can also refer to the groin. And so the implication might be, especially when we read this in context, some commentators say, this woman is trying to prevent a man and potentially his wife from being able to procreate. And so... There's a leverite marriage, levirate marriage, that's talked about in the preceding verses, where if a woman loses her husband and she's she doesn't have children, he doesn't have a family line anymore, uh, then they make provisions for that, and and they're saying maybe these are is one instance in which this woman would no longer qualify for levirate marriage. If she tries to prevent somebody else from being able to have children, then she should no longer qualify for this provision. So consider the language, right? First, we look at other passages that are like it. Next, we look at the language. Does anything that that this verse is hard to translate? Uh, there are times in the Old Testament where a verse will be so bizarre, and still to this day, uh, we are unsure of how exactly that should be translated. Here's the third. Consider the culture. So the culture is foreign to us. Right? And that means a lot of times things get easily lost in translation. Take, for example, that early Jews, for them, having descendants, carrying on your family name was, for some of them, their idea of salvation. It was their idea of the afterlife, having children, and having your children carry on your name, having that legacy. Eventually, it becomes the highest hopes of Israelites that the Messiah would be born of their bloodline. This was huge. Having children was huge. Additionally, if your genitals were crushed, you were no longer allowed to be part of the worshiping community. And so this was a serious offense. There's a lot at stake here, more than just what meets the eye, an attack on someone's eternal future. It's not not a verse about punishing impropriety. And here's another key cultural component. Key, I think. Most rabbis and early Jewish commentaries that we have on this passage, understand it to be saying, she must pay the redemption price for her hand. In other words, figure out how much a hand is worth and charge her that amount of money as a fine. This is an interesting phenomenon that happens all the time when we're reading Old Testament law. For every crime except intentional murder, you could pay a ransom price for your life or for your body part if that was the punishment. For example, take a verse like Leviticus 29. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. right? And we read that verse and we're like, man, what is going on in this place? The son or daughter who did the cursing isn't killed. They have to pay a ransom price or a redemption price for their life. Say, 30 silver coins. And if they couldn't afford it, then the community around them was to pay it. And sin, so sin would become this, not just personal event, but a, a community event where the community was involved in participating in redemption of that person. Maybe you're thinking, man, well, I wish the Bible would just say that. I wish it was a little bit more clear. Fair enough. But this reflects the language of the time. It was clear to the people that it was written to. And the reason that they're doing this is they're highlighting the seriousness of the offense while also highlighting the grace and the mercy that you're shown. You only end up paying a fine instead. And you're like, well, I deserve to be dead, at least I'm not dead. Jesus does something similar. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And so the text that we're reading in the Old Testament, it's, it's classic, or when Jesus says that law, it's classic rabbinic hyperbole. It's one of the ways that they talked. He's not expecting people to gouge out their eyes. He's highlighting the seriousness of the offense. And culturally, we kind of miss that sometimes. And that's just one law. But I use it to show you that sometimes we miss important context clues within the text. Sometimes we're not understanding what the original language actually has to say. We miss those nuances. And sometimes we miss kind of key cultural knowledge that completely reorients a passage. There's a scholar named Joshua Berman, and he writes this book, Created Equal. I mention it in your notes. In it, he shows the whole book. The premise of the book is that The social order that's proposed by the laws of the Torah is recognizable to Israel's neighbors, ancient Babylonians and Canaanites, but a total ethical revolution towards a greater form of social equality. In other words, the Old Testament law was radically progressive and undermined the ethics of the day. So just if you want to gain an appreciation for Old Testament law, the way that David does when he says, man, the law... Of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Read that book. If you're struggling with that, I would just go ahead and encourage you to to pick up that book or, or ask the library to start carrying it. The bigger question is still for us: what is the law? How are we supposed to how we understand the law? Uh, Will further our ability to read the law well, right? So so far we've just kind of talked about what do we do when we come to a law that 's troubling, But now I want to ask the question, how or what is the law? How are we to understand it? here's the big one. The Old Testament law was not a legal code. The Old Testament law was not a legal code. So I want you to look at this quote. This also comes from Berman. Of the many thousands of Mesopotamian law documents in our possession, not one of them cites the Code of Hammurabi or any other code as a source of authority. This in spite of the fact that the Code of Hammurabi was esteemed and recopied for more than a millennium. All of this suggests that ancient Near Eastern law codes were of a literary, educational, and monumental nature rather than legal and judicial part of what this quote is saying is that even though law codes existed, they weren't used in courts. A judge would not say, okay, let me refer back to the law code and find out what your punishment is. They do not use law code the way that we use and understand law today. Fascinating. And so we have all of these thousands of documents, legal documents, and not one of them refers to their law code. To... to, to say why it is that they're making the decision that they're making. This also comes from the guys over at the Bible Project. We mention them a lot. We use them a lot. They've got a couple great podcasts on the law, and so I've listed them in your sermon notes as well. And, And they discuss this fact. The law in Scripture also isn't used when you read Scripture, when you read legal cases that happen in Scripture. There are plenty of instances where the law is not referred back to. And so we, we see this in a couple things in Scripture when we read Scripture. I think there's a case in Jeremiah, which is the most extensive uh, court proceeding that's, that's in Scripture. And never once do they refer to the law for their rulings or their judgments. So if the law isn't a legal code to direct court rulings, then what is it, right? They're illustrative examples. So we mentioned before that there are 611 laws in the Old Testament. I know that Terry is here, um, and so you're on my mind when I'm saying this. Hopefully it's all true, and you can meet me after and rebuke me if it's not. But it'd be near impossible to run a society on just 611 laws. Did you know that no one knows how many laws America has? The number is considered to be uncountable. Just as an example, from 2000 to 2007, I was like looking for law figures here, I could not find any, and um, here's what we have. From 2000 to 2007, just seven years, Congress enacted 452 new criminal offenses. So seven years, 452 new laws about crimes alone. Just criminal offenses. 452, almost what we have in the Torah. You cannot run society off of only 611 laws. And so I say that to say that the Old Testament Jews had more laws than just what we find when we read Scripture. Here's one more piece of evidence to this idea. Hebrew language assigns a numerical value to their letters, right? So every letter in the alphabet is a letter, but it's also a number, that would be so confusing, I think. The Torah, the word Torah, has a numerical value of 611. So here's the point of all of this. Only, right, that was like, that was by author's design there. We're gonna choose 611 laws to highlight in the Torah, the book about the law but it can't possibly be. their only laws. And consider how specific some of those laws are. If you're really trying to have a simplistic law code, you'd keep your laws vague and sort of overarching, right? You wouldn't detail very specific examples like, hey, if there are two men and they happen to get into a fight and one of their wives is close by and she comes over and she's trying to help out with the fight, you wouldn't do that. Our first thought when we read that is, Sorry, my first thought when I read a passage like that is like, how often are the Jews having this issue where men are fighting and wives are grabbing genitals? (laughs) Right? That they have to make this law, that that appears in scripture. And the reason that that's so specific isn't because it was so common, but because it's an illustrative example that would guide a judge, but not to be used in order to tell a judge exactly what to do. So we've moved into the second part of this message, which is this. Why did God give us the law? What are we supposed to do with it? Why is it here? Why did the Israelites have it? And uh, I want to give you my top, top three reasons. From Scripture, also from my brain, hopefully too from the Holy Spirit. So, number one, love. God gave the Israelites his law because he loved them. The covenant law of the Israelites can also be stood, understood as a sort of covenant marriage between God and his people, which was totally new uh, for this time period and this location. It's just a totally new concept, right? The covenant detailed expectations of the relationship that the Israelites would have with God, and it wasn't just the ruling class that had this relationship with God. The deity of the region. This is is totally different. God has expectations and he wants a relationship with every single Israelite. They were all to be a part of this covenant. But even more, man, we know that one of the things that a loving parent does is they create structure. They create safety. They create a predictable environment as much as possible, right? Why do we tell children not to touch hot ovens? Isn't it because we love them and we care about them, we want what's best for them? I often remind Jude, I mean, in fact, we were camping this past weekend, which I mentioned before, and I brought a hatchet, and there were rules about who was allowed to use the hatchet and who wasn't. (laughs) and there were also we had a multi-tool which Jude was super pumped about and I was like yeah you can use the pliers on the multi-tool button he's like yeah I really want to use the knife setting (laughs) like I know buddy I know you do and that would be really fun and it would be cool but it's also dangerous and the only reason I'm telling you that you can't is because it's not safe if it was safe I would love it if you could use the knife setting but it's not, and I love you too much. I don't want to see you get hurt. He was like, all right, that makes sense to me. In Deuteronomy 7, chapter 7, verse 7, Moses reminds the people, he says this to them. He says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you And kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. The covenant law is also a covenant of love between God and every single individual Israelite who's entering into it. He gives his law because he loves the Israelites, and he considers his law a covenant of love. Number two, wisdom. God gave the Israelites his law so that they could gain wisdom. Torah, that word, Torah, the first five books of the Bible, doesn't actually mean law, but rather it means something closer to instruction. That same word is used often in the book of Proverbs, where the author will say, My son, listen to my Torah, or listen to my instruction. Proverbs was wisdom literature. And so for the Israelites, the commands of the law were meant to be illustrated, illustrative examples like you would find in wisdom literature. And so you have verses like Deuteronomy 4, verse 6, which says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all the decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The law is for the gaining and understanding of wisdom. And so we have Deuteronomy 1, 15 to 16. In fact, a lot of the places where Moses talks about the qualifications for judges, he'll mention their need for wisdom. And so we have have these lists like wise and respected men who don't show partiality and aren't afraid of anyone. They're not necessarily lawyers. They're not experts in the law, but they are wise. Wisdom was the key. It doesn't say anything about their knowledge of the Torah that they needed to have in order to be a judge. It says everything about character, not taking bribes, which we read about a lot in Proverbs. Wisdom here is the key. The law, so the law guides people in wisdom, but it was also understood through wisdom. It took wisdom in order to understand the law. Wise Israelites discerned the law, and wisdom was gained through the law. Let me show you an example of this happening in the New Testament. Awesome example. There's this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul, who is one of the best Jewish scholars of his time, he talks about sitting under this famous rabbi, um, and, and he talks about how he's the Pharisee of Pharisees. For Paul, he knows that he, he talks about his heritage, right? Like, Paul is thoroughly Jewish, And he's an expert in the law, and he becomes a Christian. And so in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, he's defending the fact that churches should pay their elders, specifically elders that teach the word, so something like a pastor. And what he says is this. For Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. What's Paul quoting? He's quoting Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Uh, so, so don't shield an ox from being able to eat while he's working. Don't, don't withhold food from someone who works. Paul is using law as wisdom literature, and he's extrapolating this meaning from it. And that's what Jews would have been doing with these commands. When Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness... He responds to every temptation by quoting Scripture. So he's, he's tempted three times. In response to each of those temptations, he quotes Scripture each of those three times. And guess what he's quoting? Deuteronomy. Every single time, he's using the law as wisdom literature. For me... When I read that and what I'm thinking about that when I share that with you is just this idea that when I read Old Testament law, it's so easy for me to look at a law that's three thousand years old and go, Well, that's outdated. Right, <laughs> well, of course it is, to some degree. It's three thousand years old. No, it's It's meant for the gaining of wisdom, and it's meant to be understood through wisdom. And so the challenge, which should be a fun challenge when reading Scripture, is to say, what are the principles that I draw out of this? What's wisdom in this case? And actually, we see the Jews doing that with um, the Talmud and the Mishnah, and one of the things that they're doing sometimes they'll 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 show two famous rabbis' position on a text, and they'll argue about the text, and sometimes they won't come to an agreement, they won't come to a conclusion about it. They'll have two different ways of understanding this, and for the Jews, that was that was part of the fun of examining and experiencing scripture, and and using wisdom and coming to different conclusions was developing your ability to, to be wise and gain understanding. So so I would encourage you guys, to next time you're reading through the law, to allow yourself to appreciate it and allow yourself to, to dig deeply and explore it. And don't be afraid of, of coming up with principles to draw out of them. Even if it appears like, well, this is about an ox treading out grain, and he's got a muzzle on, and it's got absolutely nothing to do with me. Don't be afraid to, to draw principles from it like Paul is able to. I want to share one more thing with you. It's not on here, and I do. I want to share it. So um, Mary, right, she's pregnant, and uh, Joseph finds out, and he has in mind to divorce her quietly. And the law compliments Joseph for this, for this sort of righteous act, but he's not following the Torah, He thinks that Mary committed adultery, and he's not trying to stone her. He's not trying to uh, punish her. He just has in mind to divorce her quietly. And he's considered a righteous man for this, for not following kind of more explicit law of the Old Testament, right? Uh, Alternatively, in John, I think it's in John, right, The, the woman caught in adultery, is, and, and the religious leaders bring her to Jesus and they say, the law says that we should stone her. What do we do? They're using the law improperly. And so and Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, says, he who is without sin casts the first stone. And that's not a law that we read in, in the Old Testament. And everybody around Jesus goes, oh, that sounds like wisdom. Let's do that. Right? And they leave. And that's it. And so this is how the the law is being used. It takes a degree of wisdom. All right. Number three, need. The law shows the Israelites their need. Paul in Romans chapter 7 verse 7 says, In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting was wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. Paul's like, oh, I'm not supposed to want what my neighbor has? Oh, okay, all right, I won't, (laughs) right? Or actually Paul goes on to say, in fact, that's why I struggle with coveting so much is that the law tells me I shouldn't, and all of a sudden there's this desire within me to do it. Oh, I can't do that? Oh, man, now I really want to, right? Just like when you tell a kid they can't do something and all of a sudden they might not even have wanted to do it, but now they want to because they don't like being told, we don't like being told what we're not supposed to do. Or, I think it's in Proverbs, there's a proverb where this uh, example of a a sexually immoral woman is trying to lure a man into her bedchambers. Bedchambers sounds like the proper word there. And she's saying, stolen water tastes sweeter. It's one of her lures to entice this guy. And there is something about, you know, uh, just that that temptation of doing something that we're not supposed to. Um, And so Paul says, man, the law shows me my sin. The whole sacrificial system, the law, the details for purification. They prepare the Jewish people for understanding what ultimate redemption will be like. It shows their need. Even towards the end of the Old Testament, you start to see prophets that are beginning to lament these continual sacrifices. Like the Jewish people have become content with their sin and content with their religiosity. Oh, I'm going to sin, but it's okay because I'm going to go to temple and sacrifice. And man, I get to have my cake and eat it too. I get to sin and I get to be pure, right? And the prophets are saying, oh man, God doesn't need sacrifices. God, God doesn't, he's not interested in, in the blood of bulls. God desires to give you a new heart, to make you a new creation, to change you, right? And um, we mentioned Psalm 50 earlier and he says in it, God says that he has a cattle on a thousand hills, and he goes on to say, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. And then he says, Do I eat the meat of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? In other words, guys, do you really think that that's what's going on here? That I need your sacrifices? That's not the point. The law shows us our need for forgiveness. But it also shows us our need to be made holy. It shows our utter lack of our ability to become holy, even with the law. and it, So it exposes our need for a savior. There's this famous rabbi. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I didn't look it up, but uh, it looks like it's Yohanan ben Zakkai. He lived around the time of Jesus. And he was a primary contributor for the Mishnah a core text for the Jews. And so the Babylonian Talmud records a conversation that uh, this rabbi has with his disciples. It's near the end of his life, and he is close to death. They find him weeping, and they ask him, why are you weeping? And this is his response. It's awesome. So famous Jewish rabbi, expert in the law, he's weeping because he's close to death. They ask him why. This is his response. If I were being taken today before a human king who is here today and tomorrow in the grave whose anger, if he is angry with me, does not last forever, who, if he imprisons me, does not imprison me forever, and who, if he puts me to death, does not put me to everlasting death, and whom I can persuade with words and bribe with money, even so, even so I would weep. Even if that was my case, I was coming before this earthly king, I would weep. Now that I am being taken before the supreme king of kings, the holy one, Blessed be he who lives and endures forever and ever, whose anger, if he is angry with me, is an everlasting anger, who, if he imprisons me, imprisons me forever, who, if he puts me to death, puts me to death forever, and whom I cannot persuade with words or bribe with money, even more, when there are two ways before me, one leading to paradise and the other to Gehenna or hell and I do not know which I shall be taken, shouldn't I weep? What's the problem? Here's a rabbi who fears God more than most of us, who knows the Torah better than most of us, and he's completely unsure of his standing before God. Why? Because the law and the whole temple sacrificial system reminds him of his sin and his need for holiness year after year after year. But it's not powerful enough to offer any real assurance or any real guarantee of his standing with God. And he knows it. So the author of Hebrews says this. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow. A dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. A little further down he says, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. No longer is a sacrifice needed. And so, the law the law is a example. The law is evidence of God's love for us. The law is a source of wisdom, and the law also points out our need for a Savior so that when Jesus Christ came, the Jewish people and all of us kind of wrap our heads around this need for a sacrifice and this need for holiness. I'd like to uh, invite our worship team to, to come up. I'll pray, and then I'll give some instruction for communion. Let's pray. God, your, your word, your law is perfect and refreshing for the soul. And during times when it is not refreshing for our soul, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding. But let's not, let's not shortcut it, God. Let me... I pray that we would be men and women who desire you so much and pursue you so much that that we take the time, that we invest the time to learn your law, to gain wisdom, to practice wisdom. Lord, help us to be, help us to walk in your light so that we can discern scripture better. May your Holy Spirit illuminate to us the text as we read it. May we have an active relationship with you and the Holy Spirit as we read Scripture. May we be constantly going, God, what is it that you're saying to me from these passages? May we appreciate your love as we read the law. God, help us to appreciate the fact that you do love us and you do want what's best for us. Jesus says that he's come so that we can have life abundant life. May we trust in that, Lord. May we have faith that Jesus says that Jesus is who he says he is. Finally, Lord, may we all know more and more our utter need and dependence on Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen.